Our guest speaker today is a great friend of ours. We've known him for quite a long time. Uh, we love him to bits. He's come all the way from California um, to be with us. Yes, isn't that special? Thank you. Thank you. Both of you. Thank you. Um, I'm sure he's very encouraged by that round of applause. We love spontaneous applause. That's sort of a very British way of doing it, isn't it? You know? So we, everyone's excited, but they're, they're showing it by just raising their eyebrows. <laughs> He's kind of used to that because he's half British, really. He's, he's, he's a wonderful guy. Anyway, um, his name's uh, Luke Geraghty. As I say, he comes from a vineyard in California. Great vineyard, doing a great job there. We love him to bits. And even though we are mostly British, it would be great if we could give him a very, very warm Ellsbury Vineyard kind of welcome, Luke Geraghty. Well, good, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be here. I am, like, super honored to be here. Uh, I just, I love this church. I had an opportunity to preach here about two years ago and um, just fell in love with this community and what God's doing here. And I obviously love Steve and Lynn, mostly Lynn. Uh, but, <laughs> no, just kidding. No, I, I just really love being here. And so, again, it is a great honor to be here. Um, you know, when I, when I think about church, the word church uh, I've kind of uh, had this question that I love asking people, but like, if you hear the word church, what is one word that comes to mind? And so oftentimes people will say things like fellowship or uh, Jesus or prayer or uh, sometimes people will say food because in evangelical churches you can't have church without food uh, or coffee or whatever it is. And, and uh, I grew up in the church. I spent, um, I've been in church since I was a little kid. I can't remember a time where I wasn't involved in church. So for me, one of the words that I think of when I think of the word church is, it might be surprising to you, but it's disillusionment. And I think if you've been in church for a long time, you might be able to kind of relate to that a little bit because if you've been in church for a long time, you might have seen some pretty crazy things, right? So I was, uh, I was this is a question. So I pastored at a church in, in uh, the U.S. where it was very common for people to say amen, you know, like, da, 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 maybe like, Amen. And then I moved to California, and they're very British there, because they don't say amen, they just go like this. <laughs> so it's, today, just, will you just make me feel special by saying amen? It's okay, all right, thank you. Uh, so anyway, uh, so disillusionment was, is a feeling I've had, and, it, and if you've been around church communities for a while, you might know what I'm talking about, because there's this thing that happens when you put more than two people into a room together, eventually there's a, there's a problem. So when I was 16 years old, I started attending the church, and uh, this is the place where I first kind of came to this, this uh, feeling of disillusionment. So I started attending a church that was small. I was like 30 people, and over the course of about a year, year and a half, it grew to like 375 people. They were knocking down walls, trying to make space for people. It was really great. Uh, and, and then uh, something terrible happened. There was a moral failure and then the church went through this huge decline with, um, within itself, and there was all this conflict and fights, and people were upset at each other, and the church ended up being like 10 people about a year later. And so I watched that as a 16-year-old, and it was like really uh, quite, uh, I guess it really shaped me in a, in a negative way. And so I kind of came to this place of disillusionment, where I, would, I was really uh, frustrated by church, and church splits were, you know, kind of... Um, I guess, uh, toxic to my own spiritual, spiritual walk. 
And so since that time, I've kind of uh, been observing church and watching churches, and I've pastored for almost 20 years now, and I've seen that happen over and over again in communities that I've been part of. So I'm, I'm like trying to figure out this whole church community thing. I, I'd say that that's a, a way of describing it for the last 20 years. I'm trying, church to me is kind of an experiment. You know, like, is this going to actually work, <laughs> getting all these people together? Uh, and so with that in mind, I want to talk this morning about the subject of church unity, conflict, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm kind of asking this question of what is the relationship between the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to church unity and conflict? Like, where is the Holy Spirit at work in the midst of those things? That's where I'm kind of going this morning. But what I want to do is I actually want to start by reading a passage of Scripture from the book of Acts, chapter 2. Really quickly, if you study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are primarily telling the story of? Very good Sunday school answer. Good job. Uh, Yeah, the answer is always Jesus or prayer, right? Always. Every time. So the Gospels are telling the story of Jesus, and we watch and we read the stories of Jesus where he's constantly engaging with people, inviting them into his kingdom. He, he spends all of his time inviting marginalized and oppressed and overlooked people, and he invites them in his kingdom. And then towards the end of the Gospels, we see him go to the cross where he's crucified, and then three days later, he is powerfully, by the power of the Spirit, raised from the dead. Amen. Good thing. We celebrate that during Easter. And then after that, he says, uh, before that, he said, when I, when I go to the Father, I will send the Holy Spirit. And so 50 days later after that, at Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit happens. And that's where I want to pick up, is right after the outpouring of the Spirit, and the Apostle Peter has preached a sermon, and then this is what happens. Verse 41 of chapter 2. It says, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Um, and for me, side note, if uh, our church grew by 3,000, I would have a panic attack immediately. <laughs> like, ah! So that's probably happening, but it doesn't say that. Uh, verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And so this is a fascinating passage of scripture for me. Because you can obviously spend a lot of time uh, talking about, uh, you know, the four uh, commitments they had. They were devoted to um, fellowship. They were devoted to uh, the teaching of the apostles. They were devoted to sharing meals together, especially the Lord's Supper. And they were were committed to uh, prayer. And so we could spend time talking about that. But, like, I think for this morning, just think about this. Would you all agree that there is clearly a ton of commitment in the early church in this space? Like, they're, like, together, right? I mean, they're, like, selling their possessions and helping each other, and they're worshiping together, and they're, like, on mission for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Like, it's really clear, and it's really exciting to read. In fact, you're like, oh, man, why can't the church be like that? Here's what's fascinating to me. So chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 go by, and it actually happens in a very short period of time. By chapter 6, all of a sudden we have 
a conflict that comes uh, to place. And what happened is there were uh, one part of the early church was having their needs met, and another part wasn't having their needs met, and so there's conflict. And I know in this church that no one would ever complain about their needs not being met, right? Some of you are like, <laughs> So conflict happens, though, and and, and it's interesting because it's in the early church. It's immediately after the outpouring of the Spirit. I mean, they are like within, you know, months of the, of the, of the Jesus story, the resurrection happening, and yet they still have conflict. And so uh, I think it's fascinating because what I see here um, in the book of Acts is something that I see throughout the rest of the New Testament, and I have personally experienced in my own life, is what I call cycles of disillusionment. Like, I think it's really common for people to come to a church for the first time, and this happens all the time in vineyards, is you come for the first time and you're like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. They have coffee there for free, you know? Or like, I mean, you pass around pieces of chocolate. I mean, I would go to this church just for that, right? I'd be like, so it's, like, it's really amazing. And then you throw in like, oh my gosh, the music is so anointed. It's so wonderful. Their voices and, I mean... There was like a saxophone. This is like amazing. And then you hear the preaching and you're like, oh my gosh, Steve is so anointed, right? It's so amazing. And, and it's like really great. And that's like your first week. And then you go the second week and it's like, oh, I met some new people. And after a period of time, you might join a core group or a small group, right? You get together with other people. And then what happens is you finally meet someone who you want to punch in the face, <laughs> right? You're like, oh my gosh, this person is so annoying. And if... I know that doesn't happen here. I'm just talking hypothetically. <laughs> but then what happens is you also you start to have some conflict and some frustration. And if you're like most churches, what happens is you, tend, you get frustrated, offended, and then what you do is you go to another church. You leave that church and go to another church. Because you have this idealistic opinion on church where it has to always be a safe space where everybody's happy and there can be no conflict. But what I, what I see is that there's these cycles of disillusionment that happen all over the scriptures where you see people like having this encounter with Jesus and then the hard work of being in community starts. And, and I've seen that in my own life. I mean, I've been involved in church for my entire life. I don't remember a time where we weren't, I wasn't involved in a church and I've pastored for nearly 20 years now and it's like I've seen that. I've experienced it. I have wanted to punch multiple people in the face many times. <laughs> Not here. Uh, so I've studied church history a fair amount, though, and I wouldn't say I'm a specialist, but uh, I would say that for nearly 2,000 years, I think it's safe to say that the church has been struggling through conflict. I think that that's a safe uh, statement. I mean, we have numerous, innumerable denominations out there where people go to different types of churches, etc. Uh, I think any time you get more than one person in a room, there will eventually be conflict. Are, are we in agreement with that? Yeah, heads are being nodded. This is great. I love this. Uh, here's the thing, though. Yet, while conflict is a very real part of church, and I think it is, uh, I also think that church unity is a really important goal for us. I think it's something that we should pursue. And one of the reasons why I've loved the vineyard, and I've been in the vineyard since I was a child, but one of the things that I love about the vineyard is that the vineyard has always historically been very ecumenical in the sense that we do not hate other Christian traditions. We might be different, we might do things differently, but we have a value for other church traditions. And our founder, John Wimber, had always said, you know, that we want to be a blessing to the whole church. And so, amen, thank you. Thank you. That one amen over there? Uh, so we've always been that way. 
And so there's an emphasis in the New Testament for church unity. The Apostle Paul, who writes a majority of the New Testament, constantly encourages Christians to pursue unity. Now, I want to say this really quick before we talk about unity. Unity, church unity is not the same as church uniformity. Like, I think it's really important to recognize that in the New Testament, we don't have this this call for all of us to look the same and talk the same. We actually can have different opinions on many things, and yet we can still be united around Jesus' kingdom and the core mission of God. Amen? So there's a, there's a really important thing. I'm not at all saying everybody in here should wear you know, pink shirts like Steve. Uh, for the love of God. Uh, this is the first and the last time I will ever say that. But. So the church is a, a diverse mosaic. I I do think that. But here's what I want to talk about is I want to answer this question of how does the Holy Spirit unite us? How does the Holy Spirit unite us as a community? And I want us to think a a little bit more broadly than just church. Like this isn't a sermon that's just about when you're here or when you're a core group or a small group. I think we can think broadly in the sense of like how does the Holy Spirit unite marriages? Or how does the Holy Spirit unite friendships? Like in in the context of those relationships, how does the Holy Spirit work? That's kind of what I want us to think about. So uh, when I'm thinking about that question of how does the Holy Spirit unite us, I want to start with this. The number, number one, the first way that I think that the Holy Spirit unites us is through Jesus, the gospel, which means good news, the gospel, and the kingdom. I think that's where we start. We start with the character of God's love. We start with the lens of, of these people are deeply loved by God, they have come to know Jesus as their Savior, their Lord, their, their, you know, their best friend, whatever you wanna, however you want to call it, and they are part of the kingdom of God. You see, salvation unites the church. That's why we can gather together with other followers of Jesus, and we might sing different songs. We might prefer different musical styles, but at the end of the day, we have experienced the grace of the kingdom. And that deeply unites us because the corresponding reality to that is that we are deeply broken just like everybody else, right? I mean, we sometimes, you know, have like kind of this perspective where it's like, yeah, everybody else is terrible. I'm so smart and I'm so, you know, good and holy and whatever it is. But if we're honest, if we're honest, we are just as deeply broken as the person sitting next to us. Wives and husbands can say amen to that, right? I mean, it's just the reality. And so... So salvation unites us, grace unites us, God's love unites us, and, and I have found that if we start with that, it's really, really difficult not to pursue conflict resolution or to, to pursue unity, right? Like if you start with the, the presupposition that everybody you're interacting with is deeply loved by God, it's going to be really hard not to try hard to, uh, to have a good relationship with them, right? We don't want to dehumanize people, which is what I find us sometimes doing where it's like, we kind of write people off and we justify our, our, in our unwillingness to, to pursue unity with them because we just kind of say in our minds or in our hearts that God doesn't love them quite like he loves us, right? But that's not actually the character of God. The more self-aware that we become, the more that we realize that we are not that different from the people that we are having conflict with. And so I think it's important that, that we commit ourselves to this, this foundational truth of Jesus, the good news, of the, and, and the kingdom. If we start with there, we can actually work towards uh, unity, so to speak. I've done a, a bunch of mission work in, uh, in Kenya, in eastern Africa. 
And Kenya is a fascinating uh, country. It was a, once a British um, colony, right? Uh, it was, it's very influenced by, by Britain, and there's you know, churches everywhere. Um, but however, in the Kenyan context, there are over 40 different tribes represented there. And so historically, you didn't marry, with pe- marry people that were outside of your tribe. And so now, the younger generation, that's becoming less and less of reality. And so the churches, however, have, have really struggled because if you are from one tribe and your and your neighbors from another tribe, you don't normally associate with them. And so what was happening is that when people were becoming followers of Jesus from different tribes, they were still alleg- their allegiance was to their tribe, not to the kingdom. And yet what Jesus calls us to is that when we come into the kingdom, our allegiance actually is to King Jesus and the kingdom of God. And it actually unites us. And that's why it's so powerful that Paul uses this word family to describe the community of the kingdom. He uses the word family, which is, it's a, it's a very powerful word. It's, it's the same thing, the reality of like, sometimes the people that we're in community with in church are actually closer to us than our blood relatives, right? And that's challenging, but it's the reality of what Jesus gets at. And so it's crucial that we, we ground our church unity in Jesus and the kingdom. And, and it's easy to see how that's applicable in, in Kenya, but I would argue that it's just as important here in England as well as in America because we have just as many tribes as anywhere else, right? We have ethnic diversity. We have socioeconomic tribes. And in America, we have political tribes. And I apologize for our president. I just want to say that right now. Sorry. Ah! I'm not with him. Okay. Can you edit that out later on? Because, okay. Uh, So, number one, it's Jesus, the good news, and the kingdom. Number two, a way that the Holy Spirit unites us is through, with and through spiritual gifts. People usually spend a lot of time with people like themselves. I mean, think back to your high school experience. I mean, when I do that, I generally need therapy. Uh, however, when I look back at it, I was, I was what we call in the United States a jock. Over here, you may not use that word, but what it was is that I was the guy who only spent time with ice hockey players because that's what I played. And so uh, there were other people, um, you know, there were, there were what we call in the U.S. nerds, you know, like the academic people who actually end up getting really good jobs, and we all wish we were uh, <laughs> later on in life. Uh, but, you know, like we, stick, we stick generally with who we most uh, can associate with. And so it's interesting because that's kind of the, the lay of the land where, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, but it, and it makes sense to me that people would do that. You know, like you generally spend time with the people that you can most easily connect with and identify with. But when it comes to the church, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul's conclusion uh, regarding spiritual gifts is actually the opposite. What he says is that differences should draw us together. He, he, he makes that really clear in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he's given the illustration to describe you. He says, you are a body. And there's some of you who are gifted in this way and some of you who are gifted this way. So some of you are the hands and some of you are the feet. Some of you are the mouth and some of you are the, the eyes. Right? And he actually says, the eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can say to, can't say to the feet, I don't need you. We actually all need each other in the church. Spiritual gifts unite us by empowering us for God's mission. It's all of the body, all of this church, the Aylesbury Vineyard, working together to accomplish God's purposes. You know, and as a pastor, it's interesting because, like, uh, being a pastor is really weird. Just want to let you know, okay? Because people treat you really weird. You know, like, I'm just a normal guy. 
Um, and people, you know, assume that I must walk on water and, like, hear from God all the time. And I'm like, I'm just trying to, like, not kill my kids most days. That's just <laughs> reality. I have five kids, so that's why. Uh, but it's interesting because, like, there's times where I've wondered, like, what is, it, what is being an effective pastor? Like, how do, I, how do I weigh whether I'm being effective or not? And I had this moment happen a couple uh, months ago where I was like, like, finally success. And uh, our church community had about five funerals within like a month and a half. It was like everybody was dying. Church growth was not happening. It was super awkward, uh, you know. And, and so it was interesting because we did all these funerals. And I was, uh, I was in our, our sanctuary, our auditorium, and I was kind of packing up to get ready to go. And I overheard two people who don't go to our church talking and um, one of the ladies was a family member of the family that had pa- the, of the person who passed away. And she was just saying, oh my gosh, I cannot believe how giving this church is. Because in our community, we do funerals for anybody. Like, I really believe that no one should ever be alone when they die. And if they do die, I think that the church has an opportunity there to be present for people's families. So we do funerals for, for pretty much anybody. Um, and so I'm sitting there listening, and she's saying, oh, my gosh, you know, all the, all the guys were setting up tables in the kitchen, and these women were doing things, and all of our church community, our teams, had just pulled together to do this. And so this lady's just saying that, and the other lady who doesn't go to our church, though, says this. She says, oh, that's just how this church is. They are so involved in our community, always work together to make anything that needs to be done happen. And I was like, you know, quietly, because I didn't want to know I was hearing them, but I was like, yes! And that, to me, is a perfect illustration of when we, as a community, utilize our gifts and our passions and our abilities together, we're united together for God's mission, God can do amazing things. Like here in Aylesbury, I don't know if you know this, but you exist for a purpose. And you might think that you exist um, for some random you know, thing, but here's the reality of what Scripture teaches. You exist for one purpose, I think, in this community, and it's to actually reach the world around you, right? I mean, that's the primary lean. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't do other things, but your primary calling here in Aylesbury and the communities that you might drive from or take the train from or whatever, or ride a bike or whatever, you exist to be a blessing for those communities and to make a difference. And when we work together, we can see amazing things happen. So the first thing, Jesus, the good news, and the kingdom that unites us. Second thing, it's with and through spiritual gifts that we can actually experience unity. And the third thing is this, it's through conflict. We can actually be united through conflict. And that might seem like kind of a cheeky way of talking about it, but I want to really press into this idea of how conflict is actually a means by which we experience church unity through the power of the Spirit. Now, I have to be honest with you there right now. My personality is one that thrives off of conflict. Like, when people are fighting, I'm like, yes, this is awesome. And my wife, uh, my wife, God bless her soul, my wife is the most kind person in the entire universe, and she's super quiet and just nice. So it's been a challenge being married to me because I'm like, let's fight. And she's just like, I don't do that. I'm really nice. And I'm like, you know, so we've had to learn how to do this. But I, I do. Like, I'm the guy that if, if conflict's happening, I want to get a, a, you know, a bucket of popcorn and just be like, yes, so good, yeah. But here's the reason why. Part of its personality Okay, I mean, I am a type A. I like to debate, blah, blah, blah. But what I, what I would say actually now in this space in my life is, is the reality is this. The reason why I think conflict is a way for us to experience unity is because I've seen it actually work that way. I think our cultures, and I think this is probably true of both British and American cultures, 
is that I think our cultures have shaped us, and many other cultures do this too, where we have one, of, one or two different ways of responding to conflict. The, the first way is this. We avoid it at all costs, right? Some of you are like, yeah, that's exactly what I do. You know what I mean? Like if you're about to have conflict, you're like, well, I've got to go. You know, it's like, oh, is it that time? Nap time. You know, whatever it is. Or, you know, like, oh, my children have to go home now because it's lunchtime. And I'm like, it's 9.30 in the morning. What time is... So there's some people who just avoid conflict. And then there's other people who also overreact in conflict. And it's like, World War III, yeah, let's do this. And, you know, you're ready to go. I, I really do think that most of us, and I would argue that most of us in this room, probably would lean into one of those two ways. And I look at my own childhood, like, who is it that teaches us how to have conflict? Generally, it's our parents. So, like, what I learned was yell a lot. You know, like, yeah, yell a lot. That's how you do conflict or whatever. But the more that I've thought through the um, challenge here, and I've actually kind of considered how the Holy Spirit might want to work in the midst of conflict, I've come to some conclusions about that, that, that this, the Apostle Paul says that every follower of Jesus has been given the ministry of reconciliation. Every one of us. Like, that's our, that's our calling. We are supposed to be people who are deeply committed to connecting people with God, and we should be deeply committed to connecting other people with people. That's who we are. That's, that's what we do as followers of Jesus. And so I believe that. I also think that Jesus calls us to be peacemakers and that the church should be the best at conflict resolution. Like, I've, I've just come to that conclusion that we are supposed to be that way. So if that's true, then we have to change our perspective on conflict and not avoid it and not overreact in the midst of it. We actually need to see it as an opportunity to glorify God. Can I get an amen? amen? It's who we need to become. And so I think what happens for us in church is that we develop this idealistic expectation for church, where it's like church is always supposed to be, you know, butterflies and kisses, you know, and it should be just so warm and cuddly. And, and if it doesn't meet that criteria, then what we do is we either avoid it by leaving or we create more problems by just being a jerk face. Do you have that, that word in, in England, jerk face? Okay. Yeah. You, I, it's trademarked by me. So I just want to let you know if you use it, I want a $5 bill. Oh, wait, no, five pounds, is that, yeah? Yeah, five pounds. So here, here's, my, here's my point, okay, is that if we are committed to seeing conflict as a means by which we can experience unity with both our church community or our spouses or our friends or our family members, then it opens up the door widely to the work of the Spirit. Now, we're a church community. The Vineyard's always been a, a community of people who are committed to the kingdom of God, but we love the Holy Spirit. Right? Amen? Like, we, we're constantly like, I mean, I, I know my daily, you know, um, routine is wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, and invite the Holy Spirit to be present in my life. You know? And, and, and I see that we do that when it comes to parenting. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you empower me not to choke my kids today? Or, you know, whatever it is. Or we will we'll, we'll be walking on the street and we'll see somebody that we really feel like the Holy Spirit wants us to pray for because they might be experiencing some type of sickness. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, would you heal this person? We do that all the time. What if, though, we thicken our theology of the Holy Spirit and we actually see that conflict is a space where the Holy Spirit can also be super involved in our lives? Might we say, come Holy Spirit in the midst of conflict and not just avoid it? 
What if dealing with conflict in a healthy manner is how the Holy Spirit brings God's people together? What if that's true? If that's true, if that's the case, then conflict is an opportunity and an invitation to work with the Holy Spirit toward the aim of God's kingdom coming and the church being united. Amen? Like that is, this is essentially what I think God is calling us to, which means that we need to be as followers of Jesus. We need to be very committed to what James uh, 1.19 says. He says that we should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It means that the way that we interact with other human beings becomes less about us and more about the kingdom of God. And it becomes a space where we invite the Holy Spirit to to make himself known and to empower us to be able to engage with people in a more healthy way. So, you know, when I was telling that story of the church experience I had as a younger person where this conflict happened, you know, I was so disillusioned. It was like, oh, that's, that's, that's church right there. Get some people together and talk about Jesus and then just be really mean to each other. Was, you know, it's like really disappointing. And so I left, you know, uh, church for a while where I was like, that's just church. I'm going to be one of those people that says, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Anybody in the room identify what I'm talking about? It's like, yeah, it's, it's, that's the disillusionment, right? But here's what, what's really cool is um, like 10, maybe 15 years later, I got a phone call one day from the pastor who had basically been the the um, person who kind of had caused that to happen by the moral failure that had happened and whatnot. And he calls me, and he, he's like, hey, I just wanted to touch base with you. I, I heard you're a pastor now. Um, you know, we're just catching up. And he's telling me his story and how he had gone through this process of reconciliation, redemption, I would say, with his relationship with God. And then he says to me, he says, you know, I, I really would like to get together with this group of people that I've offended and so you have to understand that that group, that community of people who had been hurt by him, I would run into them 10 years after it, and the only thing they would talk to me about was that experience. The book, the book of Hebrews talks about how we can have the, the root of bitterness defile us, and so that's what would happen. I'd say, hey, how you doing? Can you believe that, pastor? I was like, oh, so, uh, you know, how's life? You had a couple more kids. I don't care about that, that pastor. So this pastor's telling me, that, and he says, I would like to actually meet with these people and maybe try to see if we can have some reconciliation, to which I thought, I was like, that's a really good idea because they all hate you. <laughs> like, you know, good idea. And so uh, the, the, the Lord opens up these doors where I talk to about 20, 25 people. I say, hey, this is kind of what, what this, per, this pastor would like to do. Would you be willing to do that? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. So we get together in a room, and there's about 30, I get maybe 25, 30 people together, and, and there was some really challenging, conflict-related conversations that happened over the course of this evening. And people are sharing how deeply hurt they were, and he's sharing his perspective. And what I discerned as I was sitting there is I sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit come into the room. And if you've ever had that happen, I mean, sometimes it happens in our vineyard context in the midst of our singing, right? He, you know, he, he'll, his presence will be known, and we're like, oh, Holy Spirit's here. That's what was happening. And so people are weeping and, and they're being healed and freed to, uh, from the bitterness and the unforgiveness and the frustrations and the anger that they had about all the people in the room. And God's kingdom came in that moment. And then we celebrated communion together. And what was fascinating to me was it wasn't that we all came to agreement on the way things went down, but there was a commitment to love one another and to be kind. Have you ever noticed that in the New Testament, Paul says that all over the place? He says, love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Why is that? Because the early church was just like our churches here. They were full of human beings, and human beings have to be reminded from time to time not to be jerk faces. Amen? Let's stand up together.